Chris? Yes, Adam? I'm curious, based on how things are in the music world, we were talking a lot about you know, my experience in the comedy world last episode, and I'm really curious about exactly how you are with other musicians at events when you're playing like not just your bandmates but the other bands the other musicians who are on is there is this an atmosphere of friends is this an atmosphere of coworkers? is this an atmosphere of bitter rivals like what is it like doing the same thing but in a very different medium so it depends obviously on what the type of show is there's a big difference between playing at a friend's house at a house show or playing in a club with bands that you've never met before um, or playing at a club with bands that you are friends with. Some shows are set up by bands and they basically get to, you know, you pick the three bands who are playing and they pick their band their fr- and their two friends bands. And sometimes that happens. Um, and sometimes you just sort of get slotted by a promoter. Into or, or a booker into into a slot, and you don't know the other people involved. I'm curious then about like the 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 last part there. If you're slotted in, if you're matched up, right? The professional option. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Obviously, that um, <laughs> you know, we were not the most successful band. That that, but that did happen to us enough times. But what about your Grammys? <laughs> I know. Oh, well, sometimes she would make it out to the show, but. Oh. So here's the thing. Do you well I'll, I'm going to throw this back to you quickly okay. just for a little 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 question. When you were playing a set, if you were playing the set with people you didn't know. Mm-hmm. First off, how long would those sets normally have been? Uh the set itself or the night? The set. Each each person's set. Mm. Yeah, and comedy typically speaking you're looking at about like particularly for a show that's being organized outside of a comedy club. Like, I guess it's, it's two different things. Cause if you're on a private show, you're probably doing a longer set. Your shortest set is probably going to be, you know, 15 minutes of time. Whereas if you're doing it at say a club, then, you know, if you don't know anybody, if it's, if it's all new to you, then you're probably doing a split middle which means the 20 to 25 minutes slot is split between two comics. Or uh, you have a guest spot, which can be anywhere from like five to seven, sometimes 10 minutes if they're very generous and trusting with you. And, uh, and, and yeah, so you're giving like a, a small little blip of time. But uh, that, would be, that would be it. You'd be waiting around. <laughs> That's the other interesting thing, I guess, as a difference between doing a musical set versus doing a comedy set is – from a stand-up perspective anyway, you are just waiting and waiting and waiting for this flicker of time that may not even go well. Right. <laughs> and alternately, you know, especially because you were in a band, like how many how many members were there in the minor thirds? If you say three, my God. <laughs> uh, it started off as two and then we kept adding people. So by the end of it, there were five. Well, and then I then I broke up the band part and it was just me for a while. So... There were, it was three at one point. Okay. Um, you know, you're, you're there together. You've got to set up, you've got to do a, a sound check. There's, you know, there's things that you have to do. There's, there's, and there's a clear separation with musical acts. Like typically 
there's not that tag team wrestling feel of a comedy show where it's like, thanks for your time, everybody. And now the MC is going to go up and he's going to say goodbye, previous person. And hello, this new person. And then leave. And then the new person runs up as quickly as possible. <laughs> and, and that, uh, that, you know, it, it, it really is. It's funny why I, and so many others who are just uh, rattled by anxiety are drawn to comedy because it is the worst thing for you. <laughs> it is all <laughs> the things that you dislike. Uh, bright lights in your face, strangers looking at you, uh, situations you can't predict, situations that you're going to dwell on before and after they happen, uh, variables that you have to memorize. All of these things that uh, are your worst nightmare <laughs> are all in one really unhealthy slurry that you swallow down each night. Well, one of the reasons I was asking about how long the set was is that it in a typical typical band rock show at a club or a bar or whatever, typically each band plays for 40 odd minutes and then you've got 20-ish minutes for uh, getting your stuff torn down and then getting the other band stuff set up. So those are longer than these stand-up sets that you were describing. As opposed to house shows where you might have things set up so that everybody is playing for 15 or 20 minutes, uh, which can be a lot of fun. One of the nice things about the 15 or 20 minute mark is that you are more likely to be able to sit through it, even if you don't particularly care about the music, because it's only 20 minutes as opposed to 40 minutes. 40 minutes is a much longer investment of your attention. So very often... I found that at rock shows, unless you knew the other p- bands that were going to be on stage, you didn't listen to them. <laughs> you, <laughs> you went outside and smoked or you went outside, you did whatever else you wanted to do. You got drunk. You hung out with your three friends who came to the show, whatever it was. Like, And I never played – well, I rarely played shows where there was like a green room or anything in the back. So you're, out, you're just out in the, amongst the crowd waiting for your turn and trying to – not pay attention to the nonsense that's happening on stage right now, which most of the time is nothing you uh, that nothing that appeals to you at all. And what you do doesn't really appeal to them either. And that's fine. Like it's, you know, you're not upset about it, but it does mean that you're preconditioned to a certain kind of inattention. Mm-hmm. And I guess music can exist outside a vacuum like that. Like, or sorry, music can, music can exist inside a vacuum like that because you can have this <laughs> siren song, if you will, for the people who are there. And even if they're not there for you, they'll give you a fair shake and may end up liking what you're doing. Yeah, yeah, sure. That happens. Well, see, that's the thing is that it's like if comedy, if the majority of people aren't paying attention, like if crowds are just talking, which is the very unfortunate thing that can happen when you <laughs> have stand up on, say, a music show. Um, but even if like, you know, you have just a terrible crowd. Um, or, you know, it's a, it, it would be a good crowd, but there's a, a table of 20 who think they're at a sports bar, <laughs> right? It would disrupt everything. And their, their loudness co- creates this barrier that prevents the rest of the audience from paying attention. And then you're put into this weird position of, I have to silence you, but I also can't be rough with you because one, my paycheck is on the line if this is a paid gig. And two, I also have to keep the audience on my side. I have to be brutal enough so that somebody goes, Ooh, in the audience, but not so brutal that people will be upset. (laughs) 
<laughs> and uh, this was, at the very least, while this was torturous to be in, it was a delight to watch other people try and fail. <laughs> I have to say, that's the one bit of schadenfreude that I got from stand-up was just seeing people lose their shit on stage. <laughs> right. Oh, man. Uh, it It was rarely fun to watch people fail as musicians. Well, what does that entail? Because, like, as long as you're playing your thing and if your thing is is as out of tune and wackadoo as, as captain beefheart of the shags and who's to say it's not music but like comedy well so there are equipment failures that can happen oh that's um, true i did not and, think of the technical aspect of it and you know even even not everybody is trying to be captain beefheart of the shags mm. and yet and and not everybody knows that they're being i mean I love Captain Beefheart and the Shags. That's something to aspire to. But like to be just absolutely not doing the thing that you seem to be trying to do, to not have the kind of voice or the kind of rockitude that you're that you're affecting, uh, that can be quite painful. Um, But all sorts of uh, technical problems can happen, or just you know the same kind of like, oh, this isn't going well. I'm going to sort of spiral, spiral into terrible places and and self destruct on stage like that can be very bad as well i've never seen a musician lose their mind on stage i've seen comics lose their minds on stage which can be very delightful in a, in a cringe humor sort of way <laughs> i think it's i think it's because it's like we all sort of feel like it's like oh i also went through that like that that's there's so many tortures many of which are imposed by like the comics and the culture around comedy itself that are just intolerable and, and don't necessarily need to be there it's it's made worse by the people who are in it who are used to the suffering and don't want anyone to have it better but when the environment is the cause and you just reach that breaking point uh everybody turns into a popcorn reaction dot gif like everybody uh, uh brings that out because it's like well, it's it's genuinely suspenseful and in uh, an area where you are so used to seeing the same thing over and over and over again that's the comedy police coming <laughs> when uh, when you're used to seeing and hearing the same material when you see this unpredictable thing that is f- funny because there's an element of frustration. So even if they handle it well, it's like you also know it's like deep down they are irked by this. And there's a there is I hate to say it a, a little a little free song giddiness uh, that I get sometimes uh, seeing people have to struggle with the wet noodle of a crowd and try to plaster through a set. But also, like, there's the genuine, like, worry. It's like, uh-oh, what if this is, like, the one in 20 chance where this turns violent? Because <laughs> mm. um. that, I don't know, I imagine that, you know, it's funny. I, I imagine that happens more. This might just be me uh, surrendering into stereotypes. But uh, I imagine that happens more with musicians than with comics. But it does happen. Beer balls are thrown. One, uh, one comic who is a guitar-playing comic is a sort of a famous clip. Of a, of a heckling incident gone wrong. It's a guitar playing comic, and some guy's like, "Fuck you, you suck, buddy." And the guitar playing comic, who's been you know genteel and and doing his little songs all night, just gets out and wallops him right on the skull with his guitar. Ouch! And then tries to sit down with his broken guitar as if he's going to keep playing. <laughs> and the audience is just like, "No!" And he he has the look of a lost child. And I wonder, it's like, do, do, do criminals look like that right when they're when they're arrested? <laughs> <laughs> 
Yeah, I'm sure. I I I am sure that music venues can get more violent than well, get violent more often than comedy ones do. Although I will say that uh, that, that never particularly happened at any of the shows that my band was playing at. We just <laughs> we just weren't that kind of band. Yeah. Except for that one time you played for a bunch of babies, and those fuckers were violent. <laughs> they would have been. They would have been. Well, I I, I am kind of curious then, uh, like, because there's also like an aspect of drinking is. And I wonder how your your musician friends and yourself and yourself and your bandmates, uh, how this may have evolved uh, with both you and them and the people you knew and, and respected and whatnot. And even the people you knew and didn't respect. Uh, like in terms of drinking beforehand as opposed to drinking afterwards and celebrating. Because I have this impression as I think a lot of uh, musical mudbloods like myself – uh, who don't know how to play a thing. I think we all have this impression that it's like, well, man, music is just this innate part of you. So like the more sloshed you get, it's like, ah, you'll never be too fucked up to play because uh, the music's in you all along and the sloppy sets are great, aren't they? Whereas, you know, a comedian who is plastered <laughs> is often just a travesty <laughs> to the point where it's like, you know, you might end up with the reputation of, it's like, oh yeah, you're the one who wet themselves on stage two years ago. <laughs> That's an interesting question. So the finest moment in my band's career happened when I was quite drunk. <laughs> oh, yeah. Well, that's probably a story for another time. But also, my band was not one that was... Uh, we were a band of people with varying degrees of musicianship. And that was one of the things that I found interesting about it. So my band included people who did not... Who were not experts on their instruments or did not really... Like who grew up thinking that they couldn't sing or couldn't play and had perfectly nice enough voices. And if you pointed at the various, you know, play this note here and this note there, then they could, you could memorize things. And I actually took a great pleasure in trying to write parts that would be interesting, but also easy for non-musicians to play. So it's funny, like what you described to me sounds like coming from a from in addition to a failed comedy background a failed acting background because it almost sounds like it's the uh, puma troop of players <laughs> you are you are gathering these these characters these types these faces uh musically speaking who hit these notes who are able to do these things and you bend them as far as they can go without breaking them so it was a mix like there were definitely people who i could not bend to my will at all in this and just they were going to do their thing and it was going to be great because they were good at it and you know i should be so lucky as to have these people uh playing my songs and, and coming up with their clever things to do during them but i couldn't tell them i couldn't even get them to like at one point i thought maybe we will you know maybe we should actually think about what we're wearing and maybe we will dress up for a show it was it was an album release party maybe let's dress nice let's let's put on you know blazers and nice dresses and whatever and uh nope one person was just like nope or dopes that's not what i do <laughs> like, okay fine i can't i can't make you do that it's cool just be keep being awesome keep being you all of you are dressed to the nines and there's like one dude or lady in overalls basically, basically. that make a nice visual though yeah it could <laughs> it didn't i take it but it could it's fine it was fine like no one cared we just it was just the first thought of an idea and it didn't didn't I was like, nope, that is not going to fly. This is not a band. We're not going to be dressing up in the same little outfits or anything. Veering slightly from from the the topic, I'm just curious, you know, about assembling the band. Then uh, it started off as a duo, like you said, right? And 
like the famous blob from such hit films as The Blob and The Blob and Beware the Blob, aka Son of Blob. Uh, you were this amorphous blob that just took on elements and rejected others at different times, then took on more elements and then ended up in, in these different kind of segments of varying sizes. And I'm curious as to what uh, what were the, the qualifications, I guess, or 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 the 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 drive on behalf of of you and and you know the band even just as a duo to like bring people in. Like what what was the, what was the test? What was the because I imagine you weren't like open call for auditions, but uh, although I'd be curious if you did, but I, I imagine I almost get more of the sense because everything with music just seems so ephemeral to me uh, that you know you saw something or you heard something and and wanted to try it out to see if it could work because it might produce something interesting rather than technically polished. Is that like a correct assumption? Yes, certainly. Yes. Okay. Uh, that, that question took a little veer at the very end. Yeah, that's what happens with me. <laughs> okay. Uh, so the so the band started out. I had been putting out music under my own name beforehand, and it was very lo-fi, and not very good. And I had a sort of I decided to make some recordings, and the songs sort of leveled up, so to speak. When you're suddenly, you know, when you're suddenly writing things, and it's significantly better than what you were writing before, and you can tell that you've matured somehow as, as that. So anyway, I was I had just moved to Portland. I was making some recordings. I had been thinking about the idea that this maybe should be not under my name, but under a band name, even if it was just me. And I was recording, and I got my roommate to record uh, to sing along, like sing in the background on a few songs, just to test it out. And I, there were going to be a few other people. I was hoping to have a few people do it, but everybody else sort of bailed on the day that we were going to do that recording. So it just ended up being uh, my one friend um, who was somebody who grew up being told that she didn't know how to sing and sort of being generally dissuaded from that sort of thing. Uh, she sang along. She was like, I'm not going to be very good at this. I was like, I don't care. Just sing. If it's not any good, that's fine. We're not going to do, we won't do anything with it. I'll delete it. It's all right. She sang. She turned out to have a perfectly lovely voice, and uh, that's great. And then we recorded a few more, and then I actually wrote a song that was going to be just for her to sing, and I don't sing on that track. I play music, but I don't sing on it. Mm -hmm. And then basically the idea arose that maybe the band should be the two of us, and that the idea was going to be that at first. So she was a, she's a very bubbly person, very exuberant, and I often am not in in those kinds of social situations. So I thought, well, I'll be the brooding artistic genius, and you'll be the person with lots of personality. And then when we're when we're playing shows, when we're at parties, when we're at whatever, like we can play out those roles, and this will this will work. Uh, and then we played our first live show, which was one of my first live shows in front of a playing in front of a bunch of people. And it turned out that I, it was fine. I had no stage fright whatsoever. Mm -hmm. I was just as exuberant as she was. Everything went out really well. We we went over pretty well to the. It was a house party, but we went over pretty well with the crowd. Um, it was great. So we just kept on with that. And then when we recorded our next album, I basically said, "Let's just invite all of these people that we've met through playing music with our, you know." at this house show and a few other things. We've met a bunch of other bands and musicians. Let's just invite anybody who wants to be on the album to be on the album. So a dozen people came over basically and, and brought their instruments and we set up some things and we recorded the different songs in different ways and blah, blah, blah. And then one person who we'd been working with very closely, we said, well, why don't you, do you want to join the band sort of full time, whatever that means? And that's sort of how it grew. We just, uh, when we were recording albums, we would invite everybody along who wanted to be part of it. And then 
uh, if somebody has showed particular interest, then sure, if you want to do it, if you're willing to do it, you can you can, you can be part of the band. And, and that that's just like people were attracted to it. So I guess musicians or people who are just interested would come up to you and to you both and say, oh, is there any way I can be a part of this? It was more that we, there are people that we were already friends with and inviting them along. And when we were thinking in terms of quote unquote full-time band members, it was, well, here's a, here's a slot that we'd like to have. It'd be nice to have somebody else singing. It would be nice to have a bass player. It'd be nice to have a drummer. It would be nice to have somebody who was playing the fifth person was a trumpeter slash lead guitarist. It would be just nice to add that to the mix. So that was part of it. If anybody else had been really keen on contributing aggressively to the band, so to speak, uh, and who was a friend, we would have probably done that. Uh, we tried once or twice with a few people who we didn't know as well. We sort of did have, there's at least one person who came to our shows and was like, turns out he could play an instrument. He could, he could play a trumpet actually, I think. And we invited him in and we had a little, uh, just, a, just a rehearsal with, with him along and it, you know, he was rusty on the trumpet and he got a little self-conscious and then it's just sort of, it just kind of fizzled out. Like it just didn't really work out. Hmm. Um, and that's fine. But like, yeah, it was just, it was just a way of hanging out with your friends to make music. See, that's what sounds so lovely about the music experience because lovely is never what you would describe the comedy experience <laughs> uh, because you're inherently uh, a loner. I always hear, um, I always hear tales of, of comics um, working together and going over jokes together. And aside from rooms that are organized as a joke jam, which is a fun – is actually a super fun experience no matter where you are. Uh, a joke jam is where you go up and you do the jokes that you are working on. So ideally, you're bringing your non-polished material and everyone is doing – like the comics are doing material for comics, but rather than – suffering through the set or leaving or bailing early <laughs> as soon as you have uh, done your new material and flopped in front of GA comics and leaving everyone's thinking about it which is kind of how it should always be i think because <laughs> uh, you want a supportive environment i guess i guess one of the reasons why i like joke jams is because the joke jams as they are organized in larger cities even in even in halifax compared to newfoundland you know there would be a, a distinct joke jam atmosphere and regular shitty comedy show atmosphere uh so maybe the the newfoundland comedy scene is just so close-knit and so special because it was it was like being in this large band of soloists you all worked on and did your own thing and occasionally people would offer feedback on jokes like we and, and we would often you know go up to each other and say you know like this in particular i really liked and and things like that or and even the the odd thing uh approaching someone very um uh, humbly and, and and you know with your with your with your hands up in surrender going like you don't have to take this but i thought of a thing for this thing and you could say this but you don't have to say this but it might make it might be nice not at the end but right before the end if you say this it could be structurally pleasing but it might not in any way let's we can just drink now <laughs> um right so so uh but what i would what i found in larger cities what i found in you know the greater toronto area in toronto and in halifax and other places is that uh no one gave a shit. Mm. Um, it was about me right now, which created a weird atmosphere in the room. And you'd have the comics who are worried or bored until they're going on. 
And I was very much in the former category. And what always uh, numbed my worries was the, I realized, was the uh, the friendships that I had in, in Newfoundland. Like the, the comics, we all, we all loved each other. We were just a group of misfits <laughs> putting on a show to raise money to, to keep that orphanage open, basically. It, it really felt like we were the Muppets putting on a show wherever the show would be. There was this delightful uh diy atmosphere that even when you were doing a professional gig it felt like hey it's still us but some dumb companies decided to hire us crazy (laughs) and so (laughs) that misfit element was still there and i thought it's like oh i'll go to larger cities and i'll meet greater number of misfits uh and that's not what happened at all (laughs) um there were uh, there was a real sense Outside of it, I guess, with uh, cities with a greater stand-up comedy history because stand-up comedy in Newfoundland is still a relatively new thing. You know, stand-up comedy in Newfoundland more or less started in 2007. I mean, comedians would come there, but there was no stand-up comedy scene. Storytelling shows were there, but that's a whole other kettle of fish. Right. But when I was uh, when I was in Ontario in particular, uh, I really just got a sense of the hierarchy. It's like, oh, this is a person who has something. I'm going to talk to them. They can offer me a show. I'm going to pretend to be friends with them. And it just was so transparent that after a while, it was hard not to feel like you were in a bad high school drama. You were involved in in these sort of like uh, two-faced cliques. And there were like the two or three people that you actually liked (laughs) that you could talk to not even necessarily because you had that many common interests outside of stand-up comedy but because deep down they were like good people (laughs) so you could have a conversation with them and it wouldn't just feel like uh, uh reactions and waiting for the conversation to be over so you can start looking at your phone again so one of the things that i found as a musician was that because i had gotten to know a bunch of friends who had bands that sometimes they would put on shows that were very, they weren't like necessarily house shows, but they were sort of small and intimate coffee shop type shows, let's say. And they would invite their friends who were not, you know, who, who may not yet be friends of mine or might eventually or whatever. Point is some of these people's music I didn't particularly care for. Yeah. Like it wasn't that I found it morally objectionable. It was just not my <laughs> thing. So if it had been a situation where I had no friendship stakes in the people involved, I would have just left or not paid attention, whatever. But because there was some sort of emotional connection, it forced me to listen to their music. And because it was a relatively you know, reasonable sized friendship circle, it meant that you were seeing these people perform again and again and again. Yeah. Which meant that you were, even if you didn't really like the music they were doing, you were starting to get a sense for how their music was operating, like the, the the logic behind it, the person behind the music. Not in the VH1 sense, but in, I was about to say. Know, just in the sense that there's a <laughs> in a sense that there is something motivating it. And you could hear that person growing or changing. You could tell when they were trying something new out. You could tell when something had affected it. And that became interesting, even if all of the things aside, you wouldn't necessarily choose to listen to the music on your own you got caught up into this person's uh experience in writing and performing and 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 thinking with music the wonderful thing you describe is exactly what stand-up in newfoundland was like because you didn't like i don't think everybody loved everybody's act necessarily uh 
uh, just out of matters of taste, uh, let alone something objectionable. Although to hear something about some, someone objectionable in the Newfoundland comedy scene, go to www.megafive.fm slash funny slash five. But we were interested. And I think one of the reasons why I had that excitement, I mean, when I was in Newfoundland, those were again earlier days compared to when I moved. But I was interested and engaged because I was engaged socially because people were friendly and it was easy to make friends and for everybody to break bread with each other and, and just shoot the shit regardless of who you were or where you came from. And and you you get it in, in, in larger cities, you know, there are tons of people around you all the time and, you know, just some, sometimes to walk around in a busy city like Toronto, uh, you're spending a lot of time avoiding eye contact. <laughs> Uh, so that you don't engage the wrong type of person. And then, well, I mean, comedy clubs attract all the wrong types of people. So, you know, you are also trying to avoid uh, strangers. Like, I, I get why some people are hesitant to to talk unless they feel super, 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 super safe because, like, oh, no, now I may have given this crazy person my Facebook contacts. And you might have a, have a weird, at best, situation on your hands. But because everyone is so guarded it's cold and the colder it is the more i realized that those those friendships and that warmth that was there in the newfoundland scene were essential in pacifying my depression and anxiety and without it uh those things would just totally blossom in my head because i was alone with a crowd which is an awful feeling and I was never, never able to, to tune that out enough. I just didn't have whatever it takes to do that, <laughs> uh, regardless of the amounts of uh, therapy I have been in. It's just never uh, been something that I could do to get comfortable and just enjoy a show, even if there's no one to talk to or people are a little bit standoffish, if not outright rude. So I moved to Portland, where I had the band, from New York, where I grew up. And when I was living in New York, I never, I had, I had an idea in my head that it would be fun to play music out, but I, I mostly didn't. I just, I just recorded it in my head and I, yeah, I had no clue how I would even go about it. But even with having a few friends who were musicians who were playing clubs, like I just didn't seem like the sort of thing I'd want to do. It just seemed too, I don't know, impersonal or upsetting or whatever. I moved to Portland and lucked into uh, a a friend scene, a, you know, a group of musicians who knew each other and were friends with each other and supported each other and played in each other's bands. It's pretty common in Portland. You move to Portland and you're immediately put into seven bands and it's fine, <laughs> whether you're a musician or not. But when I moved to Toronto, it was like, well, you know, I stopped playing music live and people asked me, oh, are you planning on doing it? It's like, not really. Um, my audience isn't in Toronto and I don't really feel like trying to build up an audience, but also the social reasons that had become more important in why I performed music were, were just gone. That whole context was gone. Yeah. I mean, there were other reasons. I was I was moving to go to grad school, and so I had to cut out some activities from my life. But basically, like that was an easy one to choose to to cut out because why? Why would I do it? I'm not, I'm not, I was no longer interested in the sort of youthful dream of becoming a big player in the music biz. Yeah. I wasn't even interested in having that kind of um, off the road career 
that is sustained in this sort of uh, what's this too? Daniel Johnson sense. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I just was like, oh, I'm going to do other things for a while, and and um, and and so and so I did, and so I stopped playing. I recorded a few songs, and then I kind of just stopped for quite a while. And how long ago was that when you just promptly stopped? When you just quit, basically. Because you didn't quit music, you just quit going out and performing live. I quit going out and performing live basically when I moved to Toronto. Uh, I did occasionally play live when I visited Portland, okay. which I still could imagine doing. And um, I recorded a few songs to uh, for people sort of shortly after I arrived in 2008 or maybe 2009 when they came out. Um, and I recorded a few. There's a there's a album that I recorded over two summer trips to Portland. Um, with some friends, just a very sort of ramshackle thing. But that was basically, that was basically when that stopped. And every once in a while, I've, I've sort of written one or two songs and, you know, put out a Christmas EP a little while ago of two, two little tiny songs, but that wasn't playing out for other people. That was just, I did a thing. Those of you who still care about this might or might not enjoy it. And, and, you know, very few people listened and that's fine. <laughs> and I, I can see going back and performing, uh, you know, when you're back in your old stomping grounds and all your all your pals are there. Like the the scene that you left, the thing that you were active in, is still there in some permutation or other. Sure. Yeah. 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 Absolutely. Whereas, um, it's funny. Like when I go back to Newfoundland, I'm so disinterested in performing, but all most, if not all, of my uh, pals made in standups are still in it. Uh, to some degree or other. And so, you know, we'll sort of try to make plans if I'm in town. I'll be like, oh, well, we've got a show tonight at 8. And I'll say, 8? Great. I'll see you guys at 10. <laughs> like, I have no interest in being back. And a even a diminished interest, greatly diminished interest in even, like, seeing <laughs> stand-up. Seeing uh, the spaces. Yeah. yeah. I, I just, there's a part of me that's like, it. it, it feels a bit... Like it feels a bit almost like uh, you know play acting uh, a former part of your life is almost as if you were going to dress up in kids' clothes and do the piano recital that you did in grade four. It's like why why am I, why am I here? who's interested in this? So it's even difficult for me to 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 watch, even though like I still root for all those people. I still like love them to pieces and want to chat with them but it's like how about a show i'm like no even sitting down and waiting for the mc to go up is an anxiety inducing nightmare to me you're not funny is brought to you by megaphonic fm go to megaphonic.fm and check out all our fancy little podcasts including for those of you who are fans of stand-ups who quit stand-up and do other things with their lives, Adam? Yes, I'd recommend the most recent episode of And Thereby Hangs a Tale, in which I invite people to tell me their most interesting stories. On the most recent episode, uh, Matthew Estevez tells me of quitting stand-up and how that proved to be the best decision he ever made and how he found a better creative outlet. Very nice. Okay, funny joke time, or joke time anyways. Uh <laughs> The topic this time around is friends and strangers, mm -hmm. so I'll go first this time. All right. <clears throat> I used to be afraid to make friends. Like, what if things went wrong? What if they didn't really like me? What if I'm wearing the same shirt? 
I mean, if I make a new potential friend, I'm not going to see them every day. I'm more likely to see them every few weeks, every few months. And now imagine, what if by some weird coincidence, every time I meet them, I'm wearing the same exact stupid shirt every time? Like, okay, let's say I have 10 shirts, and this means there's a 1 in 10 chance that I'll be wearing that same shirt the second time I meet them. And that means that there's a 1 in 100 chance that if I've met someone three times, I was wearing the same shirt each time. A 1 in 100 chance doesn't sound like a very good chance, doesn't sound very likely, but I've probably started friendships with at least 100 people. So this has probably happened at least once. At least once, I've probably met somebody three times over the course of a few weeks wearing the same shirt, accidentally wearing the same shirt each time, and they probably noticed it, because that's all they've ever seen me in, and thought that I was a total weirdo who had only one shirt. Or maybe they thought I had a favorite shirt, a favorite shirt that I was wearing to impress them again and again and again. I mean, that's a warning sign, right? That shirt might as well say, avoid, in big puffy letters, with a big arrow pointing straight up to my face. Like, this has happened. I am sure this has happened. I've proved it. It's mathematically impossible to make new friends. <laughs> Chris, I think your bit just gave me an anxiety attack. <laughs> <laughs> okay, your turn, then we'll, then we'll debrief. <laughs> All right, well, I've got something short and sweet <clears throat> that is not so much about friends or strangers, but instead about enemies. <clears throat> they say if you seek revenge... First dig two graves. This is not such great advice if your archenemy is a lazy grave digger. What? That's it. <laughs> That's the bit. I feel like I, I feel like I'm not getting the joke. <laughs> <laughs> well, if you dig two graves, you've, you've done the work for him. Okay. Oh, oh. Wait, what was the set of the kids? <laughs> I think you've stumbled onto the reason why I quit. <laughs> I feel I feel very tired. All yeah. <laughs> I have that effect on people. It's, that's why I call sleepy time jokes. Let's rewind the tape. Let me let me hear the joke again. All right. <clears throat> A wise man once said, "If you seek revenge, first dig two graves." This is not such great advice if your arch enemy is a lazy grave digger. Right. <laughs> That's what I was going okay. for. So part of it, sorry, uh, this is mm, this is amazing. Um, this is the riddle of the Sphinx. Part of it is that I don't think I got the the. the I've never heard this quote before. Oh really? If this, if you're playing off a famous thing, yeah. Is this is this like a Newfoundland thing, or is this no? No, is this no. Something that came up in Shakespeare. I, I I've never heard this. If you seek revenge, first dig two graves. Oh yeah, no, it pops up. If you seek revenge, two graves. Meaning is how Google Auto fills it. <laughs> That's just for this joke. The first uh, the first thing that comes up is a Reddit link that says it's Confucius. <laughs> so that almost certainly guarantees that it's not that's not Confucius and it's not from Confucius. <laughs> Misattributed more things than George Carlin. <laughs> right. You're digging too great. Right. Though people are people people are definitely confused broadly by what this means. <laughs> <laughs> oh wow. <laughs> I mean yeah, people, I mean, I, admittedly, I, I search for meaning, but people—I mean, people get that it's one for themselves, but they don't quite understand why they need to. <laughs> well, presumably, it's two lives destroyed. It's you and your nemesis. And if your nemesis is a lazy, well, I'm, I'm, I'm sorry. Is, I'm sorry to spend so much time unpacking this. No, that's okay. Uh, the 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 turn, I guess, is that. Oh man, is that you? If you are 
just digging a bunch of graves. You are actually helping out your arch nemesis, the lazy grave digger. You're doing his job. Oh, oh, that is good. Oh, that <laughs> if is only it's not... underlined. <laughs> <sighs> okay, okay. Because I was thinking, but if they're seeking revenge on you, and they wouldn't have bothered with the two graves, but you've already done that work for them. Exactly. That was, that. yeah. But like, hmm. But then why would it, yeah. But you were already planning on having both of you die. See? It's oh, all right. I get it now. I get what you're. I get where you're going with it. Yeah, that it, makes sense. My jokes are often described as haunting, Chris. <laughs> well, if, if they're involved grave diggers, I should imagine. Mm. Oh, okay. Well, I feel like I feel like an idiot. <laughs> <laughs> this was my puzzle box. <laughs> uh, I, you know, I, I at some point we're going to have to do an episode on the idea of solving for the joke, but that's that was not quite what I normally think of when I think of that phrase. <laughs> Oh boy. Um did uh did I I'm trying to think of a way of asking did that joke usually go over well? That joke had a tendency to uh, uh split cuz it would it would either do very well or it would just be like what? as though it was just a long setup. And it could be done, you know, in isolation or uh, with the aforementioned kind of Gooden's bit that I did on a previous episode, or as part of a greater kind of routine about death. And I, I did uh, in in both ways, and and neither neither had a, a a consistent response. It would either do well in that you know the absurdity was kind of picked up on immediately, or people began to think about it. <laughs> uh, uh, as though as though everyone was silently saying wait wait don't tell me only on npr <laughs> so uh yes i cannot speak to i cannot speak to necessarily the consistent success rate for the joke i can only say that i always liked it this is a joke that that pleased me and <laughs> i, I it, it was one of those ones where it's like oh i don't care if this fails because <laughs> it's sometimes just uh confusing the audience with this because i enjoy it so much i feel i get it and maybe there is some vital component missing that would uh, make it actually flourish and and make it something that everyone could enjoy without breaking but i always liked it and <laughs> so i thought uh diving away from friends and strangers and friends and acquaintances uh just do this enemies joke that i had <laughs> tucked away i fully approve of that impulse <laughs> What's interesting is that, you know, I see your situation almost escalate. Like you would have to prove to your newfound friends who suspect that you are weird because you always have the same shirt. Is that you would have to just ultimately take off the shirt in front of them and burn it in front of them in a cleansing fire, screaming, I am not weird. <laughs> see? The problem is that you don't know them well enough that they would just tell you that you're being weird about the shirt. <laughs> <laughs> but then you point to the fire and you go, I'm not weird. It's the shirt. It's the shirt that's weird. And that's the only circumstance. You can imagine being on the other side of that and making make, make, making a new friend and they always wear the same shirt every time you see them. <laughs> and you're trying to decide whether this is just happenstance or whether it's actual, like, that is the only shirt they wear. Oh, see, if I see someone who wears the same shirt all the time, I just make the natural assumption that they're in a punk band. Or a superhero, either way. I suppose. 